Good morning. Welcome to Tomo Bible. My name is Skeet. If you're new, I'm the senior pastor here. And if you've been here a while, my name is still Skeet. And nothing else has changed. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Nehemiah, chapter 6, where we'll be today. And give you a little rundown of, of what has gone on thus far. The story of Nehemiah is one of the story of a committed, godly Jewish man who found himself exiled away from the city of God, away from the land that God had promised them, serving the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, there in Susa, which was his winter citadel where he would stay, the palace that he would spend the winters in. He gets word of the city of Jerusalem, he gets word of the people of Israel being in Grave danger, the walls being torn down, and them being disrespected and mocked among the nations. And Nehemiah weeps over this, and God kind of places this burden on him to really transform the course of his life around addressing this issue, around being used by God to restore the city and the people of God. And so Nehemiah begins this journey. The king funds the project and provides resources for them to go and to build. He gets everything they need. Nehemiah shows up and he surveys the situation. He announces his intention to the people to, to begin restoring the city. And, and instead of just instant and constant excitement about the mission, what he experiences over a period of what we're going to find to be just short of two months is constant opposition and threats. And Nehemiah begins continually pushing through that as a man of prayer and a man of faith in God. If you were here with us last week, you kind of saw probably one of the worst weeks any leaders ever had. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go to our website or our podcast and download that. He's had a really tough go of things. Last week, there were men threatening his life. There were men slandering him, men attempting to deceive and discredit him. Men that he might have respected and looked up to at some point, who people would have seen as prophets or men who were upright, who had spoken for God, who had now uh, begun to be opposition to God and His work, publicly maligning Nehemiah and threatening his life. Nehemiah continues with the work, and we get into chapter 6, verse 15, and we find something really interesting. Nehemiah, after all of this time and energy and effort, all this emotion and passion into rebuilding the wall, with very simple words, tells us about its completion. So in verse 15, this is what he says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished by the help of our God. And we want to just stop for a second. I, I love how Nehemiah finishes this. He, he's devoted a significant kind of chunk of his life. He spends months there in Susa just in prayer before he even approaches the king with his request. And then he, he gets the king's permission and approval and he takes this long journey to Jerusalem, and then he spends almost two months rebuilding the wall. And so at least kind of six months of his life have been devoted solely to this mission. And when it comes to completion, he says, so the wall was finished. 
No fanfare, no great proclamation, no, no story of His goodness, no, no statue of Nehemiah put up in a public park. Nothing. He just says, so the wall was finished. It was done. Now, when He tells us it was finished... He uses this, this Hebrew word, watislam, which is not just to speak of it being done, like the work is finished, but it, it talks about something being sound. So it speaks not only of the completion, but the quality of the project. It says the wall was completed, it was sound, it was sturdy and good and strong. The work was finished, and it's quite amazing that the wall is good. Because we read earlier this list of the people working on the wall. And they have everything, every possible trade you could imagine, except a mason or a carpenter. I mean, they've got silversmiths, artists, perfumers, hairdressers, city councilmen. Everything except a skilled professional. And the wall comes to completion. And it's not only completed, but the job is done well. Nehemiah, with no fanfare, says it's done completed. Also notice there's a bit of a passive voice here. He doesn't say, so we completed the wall. Or I completed the wall. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah says things like, I wanted the people to understand what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He'll talk personally about what God has done through and for me. But when it gets to the completion of the wall, Nehemiah doesn't say, so I finished the wall. He doesn't say, so we finished The wall. He says the wall was completed. It's a third person passive verb. It was done. And it was done by someone other than us. Which is consistent with Nehemiah's approach to this whole thing. Through the whole process he's praying. God, strengthen my hands for the task. God, you've got to do this through us. And God does it. And so Nehemiah at the end ascribes glory and honor to God, and in 52 days, God moves in such a way to address something that over 140 years the people had been unable to fix. In just 52 days. You you think about that. 140 years since the nations had come through and the Babylonians had utterly destroyed the city. And 52 days after Nehemiah arrives in town, the wall is completed. God has moved in their midst. Now we would expect at this point that the people of Israel gather and there's a barbecue and a celebration and they lift Nehemiah up over their heads and they run him off the field and then they get the jug of Gatorade and they pour it on top of him and then they get commemorative t-shirts. And maybe ball caps. And we talk about the day of the wall being completed and Nehemiah's kind of likeness is bam, front and center. But I want you to see what happens. Go back to verse 16 with me. It says, All our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jeho- 
that guy, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakah, as his wife, and they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So, if you haven't been with us, Tobiah is a guy who has been consistently opposed to the rebuilding of the wall. Tobiah has slandered and threatened Nehemiah. And so what we kind of get here is the wall's completed. Nehemiah has led this great work for the people of God. And yet some of the men who are actual leaders on the team with him are in camp with the opposition. And they're writing letters back and forth. And when they get a chance to, in Nehemiah's presence, they talk about how great Tobiah is. And then if Nehemiah says any little thing, they report it back to him. Because they had some kind of family connection. They had sworn an oath to it. It's even more difficult when you realize that Tobiah is a Hebrew name. right? He's within the family. And he's consistently opposed to the work, looking to derail and discredit it. And so instead of this great celebration, what Nehemiah unveils to us is that with success in pursuing the call of God, there are two responses you should expect. One is this most obvious one. He tells us that when the nations around us saw the work was completed, they fell greatly in their own esteem because they saw that God had done this. That the people around them saw the power and the strength of God. Non-believers opposed to God saw the truth in God's power through what He had done in His people. And I want to unpack that for a moment. Because it's important to understand that people who do not know God can observe the power and work of God in the people of God in such a way that they begin to believe something about God that is right and true. Now, them observing a Christian walking in integrity and faithfulness, being transformed into the image of Christ, that's not enough for them to become believers. They've got to hear the gospel and believe it. So just a good testimony is insufficient, but it's necessary. They see the transformation and the strength of God in what He's doing in His people, and it says they fall greatly in their own esteem because they saw that God had done this. That their God was real. And so God is honored. Even amidst the Gentiles, even amidst the non-believer, God is honored because He is seen as strong and powerful. So that's one response to God moving and bringing success and victory for His people is the honor and glory of God being seen. But it's not the only response. You also see very plainly that criticisms and critics persist even in the midst of success. Even in the midst of everything going well, critics kind of rise up to, to kind of poke at whatever the, the leader did. To discredit him in some way. I find this to be largely fueled by jealousy. We find it throughout the Christian community. Do you want to know one way as a pastor to get other pastors to talk bad about you? Have your church be really strong and healthy. It sounds funny. But for a church to be successful, to be reaching people, to be seeing people transformed and sent out into the mission field, I guarantee that that is is just enticing some other Christian leader to, to speak negatively about what you've invested in. Because we all have this sense when we see God do something, we want to know why He's not doing it in us. And whatever that other person might be saying, that can't be God, because clearly we're more godly than them. And so it must be some kind of trickery. 
or when we see somebody else's kids succeed above and better than our own, it's like, well, well, Johnny, you know, yeah, he won, but it was because, you know, that, you know, he's the starting quarterback, but his dad's friend with the coach. I mean, my kid can throw better. We can't celebrate someone else's victory because in some sense we've got this jealousy that kind of stirs within us that we, we have to say, wait a minute, that should have been me. That should have been my kid. That should have been us. And so it's there. If you experience great success in any area of life, expect people to pop up that are going to try to provide some kind of reason why it's illegitimate. That's what Nehemiah experiences. Consistent opposition, even in the face of success. When you would have expected the people to kind of coalesce around Nehemiah and say, this guy is a good leader, he does know what he's doing, the opposition is just constantly there. With people even within his own camp. There are many people with a vested interest in the mission of God not playing out in this world. Many of them disguise themselves as Christians. There may be some of you in this room. The New Testament calls those people wolves. And it's very clear that wolves are to be looked for, exposed, and removed. That's Acts chapter 20. Now, you would think Nehemiah is done with the work. To be honest, if I'm Nehemiah and I've been sent to rebuild the wall and the wall's done and these people have acted this way towards me, I'm getting my first ticket on a Greyhound bus out of Jerusalem. I'm done with these people. But Nehemiah has such an affection for the people of God, even when they're difficult, that he says, "We're, we're not done. I want you to see that Nehemiah's next question is, okay, what's next? The wall's finished, but he doesn't say, I'm done, I'm out of town. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. He says, when the wall had been built... And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to him, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the bar and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. For the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So this is Nehemiah's initial statement. Okay, we've got the wall built. Now we've got to make provision to protect the people. And so the plan is very simple. We're going to protect the people by, uh, by appointing guards. And we're going to keep the doors shut until the busiest time of day. So, generally speaking, in the ancient world, the the gates to the city would be open from sun up to sun down. And Nehemiah narrows that. He says, wait till the sun is high in the sky and it's hot. Because we all know if someone's been laying in wait, if you sweat them out just a little bit, it improves things. When we played high school basketball, we were not very athletic. I mean, I got to play a lot. So that tells you... um, the athletic prowess on our team. and uh, But we were in really good shape because our coach knew that conditioning and discipline can often make up for a lack of actual talent. And so here's what we did. Um, we would play some of these schools that, that, that we felt like were undisciplined when they were fatigued. We'd watch game film. Coach would come to that. And they'd get in this little rinky-dink gym that we had, and we'd turn the heater on. Even if it wasn't cold. I mean, we'd get it up into the 80s in there, and we'd run full-court trap the whole game. 
and he would just cycle us in and out. Fresh five every couple minutes, just boom, boom, just, just keep it running because we knew that, that fatigue and heat and sweat makes people far less likely to want to fight. And Nehemiah, just like Coach LaPrat, understands this principle. So he says, let's, let's let it get nice and toasty. If they want to attack us, let's make them tired and thirsty and hot and wait it out and we'll keep the people safe. And so Nehemiah's first kind of thing he's got to do, he says, I want to protect the people. I want to make sure everyone's safe. I didn't just come to build a wall. I came to rebuild the people. We've talked about this before. Whatever it is God's called you to build, there's the expectation that you'll defend it. And we don't just say we're done here. Right? Those of you who are raising kids, when they turn 18 and move out, you don't wash your hands of the whole thing. We want to raise godly young people that at a certain age, we send them out into the world as ambassadors for Christ, ready and prepared to face the temptations and struggles of this world. But we don't, once we launch them, say, I'm done. We want to continue to walk alongside them. We want to continue to encourage them. We want to continue to lift them up in prayer. We want to see them flourish and blossom in their faith and their walk with the Lord. And so we want to continue to be there to guard and protect them. The work is never really completed. That's what Nehemiah is showing us. He wants to protect what he's built. Then he does something else. He starts to count the people. It starts in... Chapter 7, verse 3. And, and what he gives us then is this long list that runs through verse 63, which is essentially the same list of the people that returned provided in Ezra 3. So Nehemiah says, okay, who's here? So he goes back to the list that Ezra had when he brought a group back with him. And he begins there and he starts kind of asking the question, who is of the people of God and who is not? Who has allocation of land from a family lineage and inheritance that we need to make sure they get? So as a governor, he counts the people. He's trying to reestablish the community functioning as God had prescribed. And then, he tells us about working to restore the temple in verse 66. He said, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 singers, male and female, and their horses were 736, and their mules were 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720, which my boys would think is awesome because donkey appears to be the most popular animal in Jerusalem. And my kids like donkeys for some reason. Just a side note, there's 42,000 people and only 250 of them are singers. So if you ever think about going on American Idol, I want you to know the odds are against you. Out of 42,000, 250 get a microphone, okay? That would rule out most of us. But here's what he's done. He's counted the people. He's told us how many people were present. He's begun to talk about what's going to be needed for the temple worship to begin. So we've got people that are going to sing. He's counted in, in earlier in chapter 7, and he's told us about who the Levites and the priests were. We're getting ready to begin worshiping God as he's told us. Read with me in verse 70. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work, the work of restoring the temple. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold and 50 basins and 30 priest garments and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 
20,000 derricks of gold and 2,000 mines of silver and 67 priests' garments. And you start working through this, you'll find that this is a pretty substantial offering for 42,000 people to offer. Could it give you just a few uh, stats about what he's saying here? So we don't have like derricks, right? Like no one says, that'll be five derricks. A derrick is 8.4 grams of gold made into a little coin. Now, a gram of gold is worth about 50 bucks. So when you start running the number of the thousands of derricks of gold given, you're, you're moving upwards of $20 million U.S. today. Then you begin to describe uh, a mina of silver, which is equivalent of about a pound of silver. That, that total count is about $300,000 of silver donated that day in that offering to begin the temple work. And then there's these large basins that they would use that Second Chronicles chapter 4 describes where there was huge polished bronze basins that they would actually use to wash the animals before going to sacrifice. So if you're rinsing a cow, it's not a small basin. Fifty of these of polished bronze were to replace the temple implements that had been lost, were given. And then they talk about the priestly garments, which were these fine linens that were sewed with even without seam, with golden thread intermingled within them. And there's almost a hundred of them donated. And, and they're, they're pretty intensive. There's over eight different components to the garment. One of them is the breastplate of gold with an ephod, which has all these precious stones on it. And by the time you start adding up kind of the monetary value of this offering, you're upwards of $30 million given in one day by 42,000 people. Now, if we take the average American household, right, and we say, okay, a family of four, which they probably had larger households then, we're going to say 42,000 people is roughly 11,000 families. In one day, giving $30 million. We're talking about offerings exceeding $3,000 per family, right? In a time of famine, the people of Israel are not in a moment of wealth and prosperity. They have been in disrepute and famine for a while. And they give with insane generosity to see the temple begin. Contrast that to what the, the, the latest stats from the census stuff tell us that that the average family in Tomball who attends a church will give less than $500 a year. In a community where the average family income is around $90,000 annually. You see the difference here. This crazy generosity to see the name of God lifted high amongst the nations. That the temple would be restored. That God would again... His glory dwell with His people. And they were willing to sacrifice greatly for it. So they begin the restoration of the temple. Preparing for worship to begin again. Now this is where I think Nehemiah, we've got to step away and start asking some questions here. Because I have found going through Nehemiah, it's very easy to get lost personally in this. Is that, that we see Nehemiah, we see what God's doing there, and we say, I wish God would do something like that here. I wish He would give me this kind of intense vision and purpose for my life, but I don't seem to have it. And so in some ways, Nehemiah is quite frustrating. Because you, when you're around these people that have this kind of singular perspective of what it is there to do, and this absolute certainty in it, and you don't have that, it, it, it's, it's a little deflating. 
And so we all kind of wish that we had this crystal clear sense of what we were supposed to do. To be honest, most of us will never get that exact thing like Nehemiah does. Most of us will never have this kind of picture-perfect perspective of this, this is what I've got to go do. This is the one thing God has placed in front of me. Most of us will never operate with that kind of clarity, but God has not left us without direction. And so I want to speak for just a moment for us. We're going to step out of this kind of discussion of Nehemiah, and he had this clear vision, and he stuck with it, and he kept pursuing it. But to answer the thing, what about me? What is my vision? What has God placed in front of me? And I want to share just a few things for you is that you do have this kind of purpose. Matthew 28 gives it to us. I want to take you to two scriptures you know you've heard hundreds of times. You'll hear hundreds more. When Jesus gives direction to His followers, I want you to see what He says. In verse 18 of Matthew 28, It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we've gone over this many times, but I want to back up and tell you what this means. He says, you go, your job is to make disciples. And then he defines that in two ways. He said it's going to mean people are converted, right? They're baptized, which happens when they believe. So that means you go tell people who don't know about Jesus, who, who maybe have heard about Jesus but never trusted Him, the good news that while they were sinners deserving of God's wrath, that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to live a sinless life and suffer for their sin in their place on the cross. And that He rose victorious over sin and death And that for all who believe in Him, there's forgiveness and cleansing from sin and eternal life with God. So, you go tell people that. This also kind of helps us re-understand, reorient what we mean by loss. Because here in the Bible Belt, there aren't many people who have never heard something like that. But there are plenty of people who are lost. So it's not just going someplace in the jungle where they've never heard the gospel. You should do that. We'll get to that. But it also means your neighbor who thinks he's saved because he went to confirmation when he was 12. When the gospel said you heard the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and you believed that you were saved. Not when mom and dad drug you to church and someone sprinkled you with water. Or you said a prayer at youth camp. You didn't get saved. You got wet at church. Those are different. And so there are people all around us, probably people in this room, who think they have a right relationship with God because grandma was a Christian. That doesn't do it. You've got to place your faith in Him. And there are people all around us who don't understand that. They've heard it, but they haven't heard it. And they need to hear it again. And so God's kind of placed you there. He says, you go do this. You tell people. Now, it doesn't end there. He says, now I want you to take those people and you begin to walk with them to obey what I've commanded, to begin to live how I've told you to live. John 15 gives us a great snapshot of that, of what a follower of Jesus does, the way they love others, the way they care for one another, the way they worship God. And you begin to walk alongside them and teach them and show them what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you're pursuing Him passionately and you're saying, come with me. Follow me as we pursue Christ. And so you do that. But you need to do that to the ends of the earth. 
So it's not just here. It's here so we build an army so we can take people to the nations. Because who are we going to send if someone isn't converted and saved and they don't grow in their faith? I mean, who's going to go to the nations? They've got to understand how to trust in the Lord, know how to share the gospel and who He is and what He's done for them, and begin to walk with Him in such a way that going somewhere outside of our comfort zone and outside of our own ability to control things is something we're willing to do for His glory. So there's a local and a global element to this. And there's a promise where He says, I'll be with you. You don't go alone. You go under His authority because of His glory and the promise of His presence. And so you go. If that's not convincing enough in 1 Peter. Chapter 2, verse 9, we get this as well. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, this says that God redeemed you. He saw you in your sin, sent His Son to die for you, to make you His, to make you His treasure. So that you could be, so that we could be a people just passionate about His glory, proclaiming His excellencies to each other to strengthen and encourage one another and to the world that is lost and dying so that they can be drawn in and worship this Jesus who has redeemed us. He says, go do that. You're His and you take on, we take on personally and collectively the role of the priesthood, which was to go before God on behalf of the people and to go before the people on behalf of God. And so what that means for you is you've got a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker that you know doesn't know the Lord, that your role as a priest in that relationship is to go before God pleading with Him to save them, to soften their heart, to give them the uh, just the eyes to see and rejoice in the gospel, to send words to not only you and those around them, to pray for God to surround them with other godly people everywhere they turn so that they can't get away from Him. So you're praying in that way, and then then you're praying, and then, oh, I'm going to them. I'm going to go to that neighbor. I'm going to go to that coworker. I'm going to ask how I can pray for them. I'm going to pray the gospel into their lives. I'm going to tell them about Jesus and what He's done for them. And he say, well, I don't know if there's an opportunity there. I'll look for it, which is the world's easiest cop-out. Like I just never had the chance. We only talked about baseball. But yeah, that's because you only brought up baseball. And I do it too. I want you to see what Acts 17 says for this, because this is, this is so encouraging. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Paul is standing in Athens with the philosophers and great thinkers of his day. And he is answering kind of the question, what's this new teaching you've gotten? So he starts to tell them the story of God. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind breath life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope that they might find their way toward Him and find Him. I want you to see what He just said. 
He said that God created all of humanity and He's so intricately involved that He has placed not only the when of when we would live, but the where. That God at this very moment has placed you. He set the times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. So I live in Pinehurst, just north of Cripple Creek, at this very moment in history because the God of heaven and earth has placed me there. He has placed me there to proclaim His glory so that others would see Him and draw near to Him. It's not accidental that I live next door to the guy I live next door to. It's accidental for me because, to be honest, I wouldn't have chosen Him. But God knew what He was doing. And so when you go to work, the guy in the cubicle next to you is not next to you by some random chance and sporadic order of events. He's there because God has determined the boundaries and the inhabitations of where you would work. And the boundaries are awful small in that cubicle, but God has placed you there next to that guy, next to that lady, so that you could draw near. Because it says that God is near to us and He wants people to reach for Him. And so I want want to kind of make this very small for us. Is that within the relationships that we find ourselves passing daily, God has placed us there. We went to a wedding this last weekend, and so we're driving home from Dallas, and it's dinner time when we hit the Woodlands. So we stop, we have dinner at the Panera Bread in, uh, right by the Woodlands Mall, and we get in the car to head home, and we have the strangest event happen. We see kind of across the road on the sidewalk this altercation between a young man and a young woman. And he's like grabbing at her purse and, and she's kind of like pushing him off and there's a lot of yelling. I mean, you can't hear, but you can see. And so I roll down the window and say, hey, do I need to call the police? Just hoping I can diffuse it with that because if I get out of the car, I'm likely to escalate it more than help. And so I'm thinking, okay, we got to do something. So I just yell that. And to my surprise, the guy turns to me and says, yes, please call the police. So I'm like, this is different. <laughs> and so we pull over and call the police and things don't really stop. And he grabs a person, he shakes it out and he grabs some stuff and he kind of heads off and he goes, I just needed my keys. And then he comes back and I've got the police on the phone and I start talking to the guy because apparently this lady had stolen some of his things. She had his keys, she had his credit cards, his ID, his money clip, all his stuff in her purse, and he's trying to get it back. And by the time we see him, she's punched him in the nose, and he's bleeding, and he's got an earring that she tried to rip out. And So he's in rough shape. And this girl, she took him to task. She was not a big girl, but she was tough. And so we're calling the police. I'm saying, just hang tight with me. Do you know her? Yeah. Well, make a statement. Maybe you get your stuff back. And so I'm kind of on the phone with 911, and Lisa goes, you need to tell them about Jesus. And I'm like, you're right. So I say, you talk, I said, my wife's going to talk to you. So I go around the back, because in my bag, I kind of just keep some good news, bad news, gospel presentations in there. And so I'm like, hey, his name was uh, Fernando, the Abba song. That's what made it stick. And so I said, Fernando, come around the back. And I grab this track, and I start talking to him. So trying to just, I got like 45 seconds to tell him about Jesus before the police get there. And, and Leisha's like standing lookout and running interference so, with the cops so that I have time to tell this guy about Jesus. And just kind of briefly, just let him know, hey, man, I, I don't know what's going on, but it looks bad. Um, and, and, and the guy kind of had shared with us just briefly that he's trying to be a good dad. He's, he's just got a job as an RN. He's really trying to 
trying to make some right steps. And I just kind of said, look, man, I don't know what every problem is, but I know that Jesus is ultimately where you're going to find peace. And so I just, in 45 seconds, walking through through little verses of Scripture and said, I want you to know if you trust in Jesus, He'll cleanse you and forgive you and He'll set you on a different path. And I want you to take this home, read it when you get there. And Leisha's like, the cops are there. And so she's on the other side of the car. They actually think she's the assailant. Um, because <laughs> they're dressed similar. Um, and, and that's last night. And, you know, Alicia was helpful in that because I wouldn't have thought to do that. Um, But God placed us there, right? God determined the times and the boundaries of our inhabitations, not only the time, but the place that we'd be there. And and for whatever reason, there was some turmoil in this guy's life, and he needed to hear the gospel as quickly as I could do it. And so that's what we tried to do, because God determined that. And you begin to walk through life with that awareness that God has defined these inhabitations, this location, this time and this place. God has placed me here. And then Ephesians 2 gives us this great good news in verses 9 and 10 where he tells us that that God is prepared. Look at this. You're not saved as a result of work so that no one can boast, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in So think about this. We're not saved by being good, but God has redeemed us and made us a people to do His good works, which He's already set up for us. We've just got to step into Him. That He's prepared us, He's redeemed us to do this, and He's set the... the, the, He's got, got everything stacked up for us. The deck is set. And He says, just go. Go make disciples. Go proclaim His excellencies. Go take on this role of the priesthood and pray. I want to make this ridiculously simple. God has placed in your life someone who does not know Him, who, if they do not hear and believe the gospel, will spend eternity in hell. And God has given you and me the ministry of the priesthood, to go before the Lord on their behalf and go to them as ambassadors for Christ. Do we need any more clarity than that? I mean, yeah, we can get answers to questions like, should I go to seminary or not? Or should I go to this mission or that mission? Or or should I take this job or that job? And I understand the frustrations of making all those decisions, but do we need any more clarity to keep us busy working for the kingdom than simply to know that there are people around us who need to hear the gospel, who, to be honest, there is probably no one praying for. And more than that, that there are entire people groups and nations that have no access to the gospel. Because everyone here in the States has some kind, at least they have access. At least if, if they got some wild hair one day, they could find a church to walk into and hear something about Jesus. But there are countries all over, there are people groups all over that, that no one even has that choice. That no one has ever preached the gospel to. And so God says, you do this here, and you build this army, and then you go, and you take this to the nations. Because here's the good news, is that when the nations hear, Jesus says the end will come, and the end is very good. The glory of Christ being seen and enjoyed in perfection, and cancer, and sickness, and sin, and divorce, and strife, all of that nonsense eradicated. And we long for that. 
And we long to see that incremental restoration and redemption happen here and now. And if we long for that, we've got to be willing to walk in it. And that's my challenge to each of us. If you need some sense of vision and clarity, you got it. Now let's lock arms and let's go. Let's pray. Ask for God's strength and His presence. And let's rejoice in this God who not only saved us, but for our good allows us to serve Him. Allows us to see the beauty of redemption play out front and center. Father God, we thank You that You have redeemed us from deepest darkness. As we look through the Scriptures, we find clearly that we were dead in our sin and blind and that we were passionately pursuing the things of this world, not Your Son. And that in that state, You looked upon us with love. Not that we loved You, not that we moved closer to You, but that You sent Your Son to draw us near through His own death. And I pray that the amazement of that kind of endless, limitless love lavished on us would never cease that we would truly be a people who proclaim your excellencies to one another to strengthen and encourage and to those who don't know that they might be saved, that your son would be lifted high in the hearts of men and women in every nation. I pray that you would give us a sense of unity and commitment around that as a church, that we'd be willing to lay everything down to see that reality come, come to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.